Waking Up is Not Enough, Flourishing in the Human Space, a podcast by Polly Young Eisendraff and Michael Berger. Maybe you've had a spiritual awakening, a near-death experience, a breakthrough on psychedelics, an encounter with spiritual beings, solving a Zen koan, or being born again. It might have been a heart opening or a cosmic download, but you saw and heard and felt the oneness of existence. Although you peeked into our shared home of unified reality, you are not handed a roadmap there. In fact, there is no roadmap for living well in the human space. In this podcast, we will draw on psychology, spirituality, stage development theory, real dialogue, psychoanalysis, and the history of psychedelics to penetrate the mysteries of waking up and growing up. Through conversations and interviews, we will discover what it means to flourish in the human space, where waking up is important, but not enough, and growing up is never finished. Co-hosts Polly Young Eisendraff and Michael Berger bring different kinds of expertise. Polly is an author, a psychologist, Jungian analyst, longtime Zen practitioner, couple therapist, and founder of Dialogue Therapy and Real Dialogue. Michael Berger is an entrepreneur, an expert in psychedelics, a spiritual practitioner of Jewishness, a skeptic, a Real Dialogue specialist, and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary, Improbable Collapse, The Demolition of Our Republic. Polly and Michael engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. What is waking up? In this first episode, Polly and Mike talk about awakening, enlightenment, and other kinds of breakthroughs that happen as the result of meditation, psychedelics, sudden insights, evangelical experiences, or near-death experiences. What do these various forms of waking up have in common? What about their differences? How about the ways that you might enter into waking up? Ayahuasca or intense meditation, LSD, childbirth, or near-death experience? Does it make a difference the way you enter in? Entering in, does it lead to some different way of bringing back your experiences back into your life? So today, Polly and Mike will be talking about all this and more. Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. So I'm really happy to be here. Uh, You and I have prepared in lots of ways to have this conversation, and I am so thrilled to be having it because I intend to learn a great deal from this podcast, and I believe that others will learn too. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Uh, I see it as a way of clarifying how I understand uh, waking up and the process of thinking about different experiences and how they contribute to a shift in our perspective or in my perspective. Let's start with hearing from you on, you know, the way that you conceptualize or define or describe awakening or what some people call enlightenment. I can either speak from personal experience, but to just give a general idea of how I come at it, 
I see it as a shift in a state of consciousness or heightened awareness, a greater awareness, uh, a depth to my subjective experience that transcends my limited perspective on my subjective reality and usually leads to a deeper understanding of myself, my relationship with others. And so it's, uh, from my own experience, waking up is like a jolt. And from my experience, it's like being awakened from a slumber where all of a sudden I'm much more present to how reality is unfolding in the moment. So I like that idea right away of waking up from a slumber or waking up from, let's say, being asleep or being habitual. So, you know, many of us are kind of sleepwalking through our lives. And, uh, you know, we recognize this even with a little momentary wake up, like you're driving home and you don't realize that you've passed by all of these places and suddenly you notice, oh, I'm here. But you don't seem to have any record of what happened between there and here. So most of the time we're fairly unconscious when we're walking around in so-called waking life. And, you know, just to make a note of it, the cognitive scientists say we're about 99% unconscious when we're doing stuff. We're just kind of doing it, noticing it afterwards. So any kind of awakening jolts us out of that. So, you know, small awakenings are when you, you might stop and notice something in a way that you've never noticed it before. And that might include a certain sense of awe or surprise. When you see the moon on a clear night, you know, you, it might wake you up a little bit. You just notice, oh, there's something that really looks different to me about the moon tonight. On a larger scale, you know, I would say that any kind of more profound waking up involves, and I like this term, it comes from Roland Griffiths, who studies psychedelics. Uh, it, it has this feeling of an ontological shock. And what does that mean? What is ontology anyway? But it, it's really like a shock to your being. You know, it's not just a shock like you might get from reading the newspaper or reading a, something online that, you know, oh my God, I didn't know this happened. Ontological shock means it basically shakes up your sense of reality. Like reality is not what you thought it was. And I believe that profound awakenings shake up what we take to be reality. And that that is something that we often call objective rather than subjective, that you know, what we take to be the world out there is not out there. Or, you know, like in Matrix, in the first Matrix, there is no spoon. You know, what we took to be a tree doesn't exist as a tree. So these profound awakenings typically shock us out of what we could call a normal sense of the world out there, in, including something like time and also something like what we call space. I know that my own awakenings have come as a result of intense meditation practice and the kinds of practices I've done, which I'll detail later, have brought 
perspectives on not just me, but what reality is that I could not have reached by any thought process, any reading, any concert listening, any following of the Grateful Dead, <laughs> any smoking of marijuana, from what I can tell. These came from windows that opened, things I perceived that were contrary to anything that anyone had told me or that I could have read somewhere, sometimes because they were very personal and sometimes because they were so counterintuitive that no one would have told me <laughs> just because it doesn't fit. You know, from my point of view, I like this idea of ontological shock being a part of a profound awakening. But I also like the idea that you were saying that you wake up from a dream and the dream is your ordinary life. The dream is your sleepwalking life and you, you wake up from it. Yeah, primarily for the most part, at least when I've observed my own behavior, I can see how frequently and how often I live out of habit. And there's a certain comfort in living out of habit. And then to have an experience of an awakening or the ontological jolt that you're describing, I get jolted out of my limited kind of self-centered perspective. And at least for me, I feel an expansiveness that a sense of interconnectedness or connection in a way with the world, which is different than feeling separate. You touched on it a bit, talking about the spoon and the matrix and that there may not be an objective reality in the sense that corresponds to the way we experience it. Another dimension maybe of the experience, at least for me, is there's a transcendence of self. Your boundary, my boundary as an individual or an isolated individual, seems to dissolve in a way where my awareness expands beyond just my senses, my feelings, in a way, even thoughts and just the way my perceptions shift, there's a greater wholeness within myself and a different relationship to how I experience reality. So, you know, some of these characteristics that you're describing, like the greater wholeness, the transcendence of the sense of, of an individual self, this sense of expansiveness, these are characteristics that are, are studied at the, the Center for the Study of Consciousness and Psychedelics at Johns Hopkins University that Roland Griffiths has studied. And when I spoke to him in an interview, I was struck by the fact that there are consistencies in different kinds of waking up. That the, He talks about near-death experiences controlled psychedelic experiences, evangelical experiences of being born again. And let's see, of course, deep meditation experiences, because they study mostly these controlled psychedelics, which they do on site for various kinds of suffering that people have. Uh, but what was striking to me is the idea that there's consistency. So one thing that I would like to say occurred to me as a result of under, coming to read about and study near-death experiences, I saw that the way that people describe their experiences 
which would include this expansiveness, this letting go of self, time and space, dissolve in various ways, was very close to experiences I'd had in deep meditative states. That was the first time I realized, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of overlap here. And as soon as I recognized there was overlap between meditative states and near-death experience, then I started to get interested. Does it overlap with psychedelics? Does that overlap with you know, something like childbirth? Because childbirth for me is an interesting experience that often doesn't get talked about. And my first childbirth experience, I, uh, it was turning into a near-death experience. I lost track of time and I saw the tunnel in the white light. At the time, I was already a Zen practitioner. And so I was fairly conscious even when I was going through this 14-hour labor of giving birth to a 10-pound baby where there was not even usually a minute between the contractions, which were five minutes long, and so painful that I'd lose consciousness. So that childbirth experience, Zen experiences, near-death experiences, turn out to be also pretty close to psychedelic, controlled psychedelic experiences. I wonder what you think. How do you think about these consistencies? Because uh, I know your your entrance into this, I think, was largely through psychedelics. Somewhat through psychedelics and also uh, maybe not a formal meditative practice, but an ongoing practice of self-reflection and trying to differentiate what's going on to use your metaphor, within my own snow globe. So to touch on on these aspects, the commonalities are perhaps what may be some kind of an underlying commonality is that these experiences shift boundaries so that I don't experience myself. I think Alan Watts referred to it as like an ego in a bag of skin, mm -hmm. which may be how we walk around in the world as we sleepwalk. That may be one particular subjective experience or the way we view our experience. But at a, at a more fundamental level, these awakenings to me have in common a transcendence and a transforming effect on what we refer to as ego. Uh, I guess now the term is default mode network. Yes. Or ego. And ego is a slippery term because the connotations, it's been abused in language for so long that it's almost, it's lost much of its original meaning. And so for default mode network, it's the interface between our awareness or consciousness and what we perceive to be an objective reality would be how I would define that. And so I think one of these underlying phenomena of waking up which is connected in a way to a peak experience is we transcend our usual perceptual framework and some habitual ways of seeing, moving, understanding, and being in the world, that quote, ontological shock snaps us out of that habitual pattern. So it's as if we are momentarily able to be present with reality as it unfolds to us. So I think that's a great answer, and I'm, or I don't know if it's an answer or a response, but I'm going to pursue it a little bit because, you know, I'm going to ask this as a rhetorical question and you don't have to answer it, but like, what would you say is our most habitual pattern in walking around life? 
I would say it's uh, self-protective to feel Perfect. safe and secure. So I, I, I'm going to take it a step further and say that for humans, because this is where I'm going, is that these things have to do with being human. Even the patterns across awakening, they're all about humans awakening. And humans tend to have a very strong pattern of believing in a self. We believe that we are somehow unitary selves that are very individual. And then further, we believe that we're inside of a body that we call my body. And then we want to protect that. We want to protect my body and myself. And so our biggest delusion, you could say, is this habit of again and again and again coming back to, I am inside here and the world is out there. In almost all of these awakenings, we pop out of the body or the body disintegrates or the body does something. <laughs> you know, sometimes people are outside of their bodies looking at their bodies if a near-death experience. I know in the childbirth thing that I was mentioning, I was confused whether that light at the end of this tunnel was me as the baby getting born or me as the mother dying. I could perceive back and forth these subjective experiences of being the baby getting born or the mother dying. And so I wasn't in my normal body. I, I could look at the clock and see that three hours had passed. It seemed like two minutes. And so my whole orientation towards being a self in a body somewhere doing something just fell apart. And of course, I was having what would be called pain, but I was largely, when I was having pain, I was largely unconscious. So I'd come back into consciousness and, and things would be different than they had been. But this habitual sense of self, I don't know if it's better to call it the default mode network or to call it the ego or to call it the Atman or there are different words that humans have put to this experience, but it's a deep, deep habit. And most of the time, most of our anxiety and most of our depression is related to narrating about ourselves, about this self that doesn't exist, what we've done wrong, what, you know, what's supposed to happen, loving somebody, what, I mean, it goes on and on and on, our narration about the self, our own selves. So breaking through in an awakening, we discover in a shock that there is no self. And then what do we do with that? It is perplexing and I, I, I do want to I do want to talk a little bit about some of the consequences of some of the negatives and mostly the positives of breaking through this sense of self. But you know, you were kind of you said you shifting boundaries, uh, transcending this default mode network. Uh, and just to put a pin on this, the way that people speak now, they speak about the brain. There has never been a time before now that people have spoken that way. They spoke before about the self or the body, but now we speak about the brain. I am not sure this is more precise. I sometimes think it's more diluted, uh, but 
It's the way people are speaking. So, you know, I think your, your definition of default mode network was a good one. It's that separating of what we call self subject from what we call the object, which is what is the not self that we're perceiving at that moment. Because it's always what the human is perceiving at that moment. Even in the enlightenment, it's what the human is perceiving in that experience. Once the human is dead, there are different kinds of perceptions. And apparently they are pretty much altogether out of what we call the body. So lots of things in that mix. So tell me what your thoughts are about any of the things having to do with this, you know, you're breaking through this habitual sense of self, this default mode network. What happens as a result of that? Well, I like I like the term breakthrough, at least from the perspective of psychedelic experience, my personal experience. It is referred to as a breaking through uh, or breaking open your head is another way to put it. And I just I want to touch on some of the points you made about the sense of being unitary, individual and separate as an isolated ego versus the awakening experience which is more characteristic of an expansiveness, a boundarylessness, a sense of interconnectedness and wholeness and oneness with everything that is. At least that was uh, my experience of having extreme expanded awareness of breaking my head open um, and getting out of this habitual way of experiencing myself. And I, I think there's there's a paradox here, a paradoxical nature to the sense of being, because on the one hand, in order to function, you have to have a strong sense of self and personal identity. And yet, in a way, to be whole and healthy and integrated, we also have to live in a non-dual state or be able to shift it. I think for mental health, at least speaking for myself, either going out in nature, having a psychedelic experience, um, ecstatic prayer, dance, things that move me outside of my comfort zone of the way I habitually move in the world. And another dimension to this, which I'd like to add is from my own experience that awakening and falling asleep are an ongoing process. It's how do I maintain or how do I try to extend the amount of time that I can experience this expanded awareness is one of the questions I would also like us to explore in more detail. For some people, it's a one-time event. Like, for example, in a near-death experience, people seem to have a profoundly long-lasting change after having that experience, whereas even with a strong psychedelic experience, a regular meditator, bringing that back, whatever we experience in that expanded awareness, bringing that awakening back into our everyday life and bringing it into making, turning it into a practice seems to be a great challenge. So for me, I try to pay attention to whether or not I'm falling back asleep. It's as if in hindsight, I can see that I was asleep and I can feel in the moment the expanded awareness but I inevitably do fall back asleep. It's not a permanent state for me. So I think, first of all, it's very important to establish 
that the state of expanded awareness that we call awakening that let's say that it is in in its simple term it's love it is the experience of connectedness and absolute connectedness an interdependence that is so radical that every breath you take is connected to every breath everyone is taking on earth right now that all of it is connected it cannot be separated out and then you have the perception of that and it has within it some sort of let's we'll call it a feeling it's more like a perception that you love all of it that it's all love from beginning to end and yet in our moment to moment walking around experience we cannot remain there even if we're the buddha the buddha had supposedly about six hours which is you know by the timing of the other humans which is unheard of i mean if you get two minutes of that profound absolute sense of oneness that's extraordinary now the other things that you're bringing up like how do you bring this back what kind of mark does this make on you I do want to say one thing about your death experience because I think it's important to notice that it is different from the psychedelics, even from the deep meditations. And one thing that is an important difference is that the people that have the near-death experience, they were out of control. It was not as a result of them doing something, wanting something, arranging something. It happened to them. They were out of control. They fell out of control into this other experience. And then this other experience also introduced them in this profound way to the thing that most people fear a lot, dying. So they actually experienced the heart stopping, many of them, sometimes the heart stopping for as long as a half hour. The, the brain going flatlining, what we call flatlining, what we call the brain, the default mode. It wasn't just the default mode. It was the entire thing. The whole show was gone. And so the near-death experience, I think, stays with people. They remember it very clearly. It actually, it, it basically changes their taste of life. And I think for two reasons. One is that they experience death to some extent. Now, not all near-death experiences have all the parts, you know, and not everyone who's had these experiences by any mean, means remembers. It's about one in 10 people that have actually the heart stops, the flat line, and so on is there. But I think one reason why those experiences are the most profound is that, first of all, they were out of control. And secondly, they died. And so they are less afraid now of dying. So what does that teach us? You know, it teaches us not only is it a good idea to drop the habit of self and to have this perspective of love, but also if you could stop fearing death and you could stop fearing the lack of control you have over dying, you might be able to engage more completely with the waking up that you've had. And, uh, you know, 
I want to say that for my waking up, it's been over many, many, many years of waking up in different ways. What I have come to experience very, very clearly is, is how useless a personal identity is. Now, on one hand, yes, you have to have a certain amount of social presence. You have some confidence in yourself. Carl Jung would say you have to have a persona, which is a sort of sense of how you fit in socially, your role, whatever. But also, you have to hold it lightly if you are going to be healthy, because there is no way you can nail it down over time and make it work for you. Because not only does the self not exist, but your personal identity is so flimsy. Because when you wake up in the morning, it's one type of thing. You know, when you break your ankle, it's another type of thing. When you're, you know, your dog is pooping on the sidewalk, it's another type of thing. I mean, it's like always a different thing, this personal identity thing. So, you know, to hold it lightly means that you can use it, but you can also set it down. You don't have to use it 24-7. You don't have to talk to yourself about yourself all the time. So I think awakening, if it if it's really working to help us be in contact with the wholeness of our experience, it leads us to hold our identity lightly. It also leads us to be less afraid of dying. And perhaps most important, to recognize that control and wanting to control this and wanting to control that is, is really connected to suffering. That is really probably the greatest suffering that humans have because we believe we can control. And so, you know, near-death experience seems to pretty much break through the control thing for a lot of people that have had the near-death experience and uh, other forms of awakening may not. Also, the near-death experience seems to bring pretty deep acceptance and not much fear of dying. Those are the thoughts I, I've had in responding to you I wonder if you want to add anything else. Yeah, I would like to first. I I like uh, I like how you framed the experience of the near death experiencers, in a sense, being out of control. That in all of these categories, actually, one distinction that stands out to me, in a sense, is it happened to them. So, in other words, the experience, in one sense, was not a willed or chosen experience, and the depth of that experience to go through death and survive and face probably one of our greatest fears is in some sense, it seems from the research that it is far more transformative and long lasting than what we will in our own change. That That's one takeaway. I would like to make uh, just a brief comparison to what they call a heroic dose with psychedelics where you do experience, or what's referred to as ego death, death or loss of a sense of self. And I, I've experienced this, and I've actually had uh, a very long, durable experience of oneness, where there was no personality, there was no Mike Berger anymore. Everything just arose, and I was present with it. It was a very strange experience. I the only way I can describe it is witnessing my thoughts forming into words, forming into things everywhere all at once. Mm -hmm. And 
that boundless experience, trying to integrate that into the everyday world where I walk through a world where it appears sometimes that others are sleepwalking, raised a lot of discomfort. I experienced a lot of discomfort in seeing, it's almost as if uh, witnessing the pain of the sleepwalkers would be the, the way I would describe it. And wanting to relieve that and yet not being able to do that. So being stuck in this kind of interdimension between sleepwalking and formally experiencing, I guess, a full um, expansion of consciousness into oneness, into a unified fundamental arising. And bringing that back into everyday reality is quite a challenge to bring those teachings and lessons and practices into our everyday life. Because once again, I'm back into that almost habitual way of being. Getting back, once the expanded experience fades, over time, for me anyway, it, the experience fades. I still can remember and go back to that peak, but not with the affect, sensory, emotional, and mental experience. I think that you're bringing up some of the reasons why you and I wanted to do this podcast, which is how can we understand, respect, engage with awakening, and then take it somehow back into ordinary human life? Because I know you and I both know, and I certainly know very, very well, a lot of people that have had profound awakenings. I know a lot of Buddhist masters. I know a lot of Buddhist teachers, practitioners, profound awakenings. I've benefited from their teachings. And yet they've done some really stupid stuff with other people, some harmful stuff. Now, how can that be? How can that be? Well, there is a missing piece. When you get back to your Michael Berger form or to my Pali Young Eisendrath form, I haven't necessarily gotten any kind of instructional booklet for how to live now with this different perception. And even if I try to come up with the instructions, I'm coming up with them now from the Pali Young Eisendrath point of view. I'm no longer in the oneness point of view where I didn't have Pali Young Eisendrath, so I couldn't come up with any instructional <laughs> booklet. That wasn't my limited ego self there. So now, how do we understand? Because humans and in this period of time with psychedelics being so essentially available to lots of people, also, let's say fairly recently, mindfulness became available as practice, Buddhist practices. Now we're studying near-death experience. People are not welcoming near-death experience. <laughs> you know, they're, not, they're not mostly on that track. There's a seeking after awakening. There's a seeking after the sort of unitary experience. And I see people repetitively doing ayahuasca, repetitively. I'm not going to even say repeatedly. I'm going to say repetitively because I see the habituating of the desire to escape through these kinds of awakenings. They're trying to escape 
the difficult relationships, the smelly city, the subway, you know, whatever it is, they're trying to get away from it. And really there is nothing to get away from. And it's problematic that we think there is something to get away from. So, you know, being able to put things together, you and I began to talk about how can we put together a deep understanding of adult development for humans with waking up? Because we know that a lot of people that wake up are not taking those precious goods into an environment where they're able to love better, to love more, to bring the unitary sense of being able to work through conflicts, being able to respect others. They're, they're not able to take the oneness into that everyday relationship with a partner, with a sibling, with a parent. I've seen many people in therapy who've had multiple awakenings through psychedelics, especially, who are estranged from a family member. And so what's that about? You know, how could that be? Or how could it be that a Buddhist master who's profoundly enlightened has profoundly abused sexually a number or many perhaps followers? How could that be? So these questions are important questions to answer. And I don't think there has been a podcast, a book, or anything that has tried to put together these understandings of awakening with the understanding of adult development. And from my point of view, this goes way beyond psychotherapy. I, I don't even think psychotherapy has the answer or even the questions sometimes around these issues. So I was glad that that you brought up there uh, this issue of how to bring this back to ordinary life. And I just want to say one thing about my experience in this is that more than anything else, the bringing back of oneness into everyday life requires your ability to not forecast and control everything. Because as soon as you try to forecast and control, which is ordinary human stuff, to try to forecast and control, very frontal cortex type of stuff, right away you're imposing your ego on your perceptions. So you're blocking right away any possibility of just meeting your experience as you did when you were in your awakening. You met your experience. You weren't controlling your experience. And certainly in the near-death experience, the one thing is that people weren't asking for this. It happened to them. Honestly, if you can encounter your every moment-to-moment -moment experience, especially the ones you're not asking for, <laughs> and, and, and really engage with them as much as possible, there's more awakening moment-to-moment -moment than if you try through your will to bring the ideas of oneness you know, to your everyday experience. So that's kind of where I want to, I think, close my part of the podcast. Do you have something else you want to add there? Uh, just uh, my, my finishing thoughts is I appreciate that the title of what we're doing is that waking up is not enough. I think you've just given some really good examples 
of why the quest for awakening or enlightenment is frustrating and is sometimes misunderstood. And I just want to bring back something you noted earlier, the connection to love, and also that your definition of love is probably not commonly understood or known, which is, if I might paraphrase your definition, an abiding curiosity in the other. And bringing that into this podcast, I think, will open up the explorations that we share with each other and our listeners in how our individual and personal awakening and transformation maybe can be uh, brought to bear on creating a more compassionate world. That's also part of not just clarifying, I guess, our thinking on the subject, but that ultimately there, there, I, I would hope that we are able to come up with practices and practical knowledge that people can apply in their own lives to try to make their relationships work better and that we are bringing more compassion to the interpersonal world we walk in. That's perfect. That's that's so well expressed. And I am just very excited to be doing this with you, Michael, because I already can tell that it's really promising and interesting and hooray. <laughs> I'm very well, happy. I, I, Thank you. Again, would like to reiterate my appreciation for being invited. I, I think this is one of my most uh, deepest interests personally. So I really enjoy the opportunity for the dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The second session of our foundational training in real dialogue and dialogue therapy is coming up soon, and there is still time to sign up. Happening exclusively in person in beautiful Stowe, Vermont, the training is an opportunity to learn from Polly and her faculty, dialogue therapy for mental health professionals, and how to become a real dialogue facilitator. To learn more about the upcoming training, go to www.realdialogue.com forward slash training hyphen registration. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.